0: Well, it's great to be here in Winnipeg for the second time in my life. I actually passed through in 1988 as a buddy of mine who actually is now planting the Catch the Fire Chilliwack uh, Church, um, and he was my best man, and I was his best man at his wedding, and, and so there's plenty out there. So we drove out so he could go to the university, or to Regent University, way back in 1988, and I passed through Winnipeg, and I kind of blessed you as I went, and probably in the middle of the night. I'm not sure when it was, but it's good to be here again. Had a great time yesterday with your leadership, and uh, you know, just really prayed into some things, addressed some things, and, and I believe that the Lord is really appointing a new day here at uh, Catch the Fire in Winnipeg, and I and I bless you. And even during the worship, I want to just share this, but I felt that the Lord really impressed on me the passage in in Matthew twenty-two, where the Scripture says that the kingdom of God will be like uh, a king who declared a wedding feast for his son, and he sent out his uh, his servants to go into the highways and the byways. Well, first of all, it's like let's bring people to the wedding feast, and those that you know, there are several that had different excuses why they couldn't come, but then the Lord, really, or the the master in this case, sent them out and said, "Go into the highways and into the byways for my my son's wedding feast must be full." And I really felt this sense that there's this um, this call or this destiny, this uh, this invitation to you here at Catch the Fire Winnipeg and and conjunctively together with the church in Winnipeg because scripturally, uh, the Lord really looked at the church of a city. And so it's like a Baskin-Robbins. There's many life-giving churches, I'm sure, in Winnipeg. And as the Lord really knits your hearts together, I really believe that there's a destiny for souls to come into the kingdom. I feel like there's a really great breeding ground for evangelism where people will come in because there's a wedding feast, and as John Arnott, the founder of, uh, of Catch the Fire, John and Carol, I've heard him say at numerous occasions, you don't want to miss the wedding feast. You don't want to miss it. And really, it's, it's very much about having a heart that is fully alive, passionate, burning for Jesus. And if I can just say... Even in our worship set this morning, and I was in Saskatoon at the beginning of August where we had, um, we we actually launched the Saskatoon Church with Fred and Michelle Pexa, and they're a great couple, and I love what they're doing there. But we had Eric and Lindsay uh, leading worship for us there, and I just so want to appreciate the the Christ-centricity of the worship that you guys carry. You know, it's really the focus on Jesus. It becomes amazing worship. We can sing songs about him, or we can sing songs about our hearts, but as I recently heard Michael Culliano say, if you're singing songs about the way you feel, it's really not worship. I'm not saying it's invalid, but it's not really worship until you're beginning to really sing these songs of honor and glory to the King of Glory. And this morning, as as there was the one song, uh, it really registered in my heart. We, We sang the song, or we sang the line that... Uh, He's called us into this reign of grace, and it's, again, this amazing invitation that do you know the end from the beginning? Do you know what you're called for? Do we know that this life of Christianity, this life of faith is this beautiful life where Our eyes haven't seen, our ears haven't heard. It hasn't entered into our hearts the things that the Father has prepared for those that love him, that there's this reign of grace. We we have been given an invitation to rule and reign with him, and I believe it starts now, but it really will take a fuller form I see in the age and the ages to come. And it's a reign of grace. And and when we talk about the word grace, I know many people, and it's the common definition of grace, says that grace is God's unmerited favor. And I say, yeah, that's a good one. But I believe there's just so much more to grace. And the one that really is registered with me, well, I mean, you can see G-R-A-C-E, God's riches at Christ's expense. That's a good one. But I feel like grace is... This divine enablement, this supernatural power of the Holy Spirit that enables us to engage things and do things that would be otherwise impossible without the partnership of the Holy Spirit. And we're invited into this reign of grace that because it's his kingdom and Jesus' prayer was your kingdom come, your will be done on the earth, that includes in Winnipeg as it is in heaven, there's a reign of grace that we get to participate with him so that it will be done in Winnipeg as it is in heaven. And the reign of graces is, is that you and I get to partner with the Spirit of God as the church, as the ecclesia, to go into every sphere of culture and society within the city, the different mountains of influence, and we get to be carriers of the kingdom of God. And Scripture says the kingdom of God is righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit. And so when you carry the righteousness, when we carry this place of right standing, when we have a place of peace in our heart, when we carry the joy of the Lord in our hearts, because there's a reign of grace, you are no longer a peasant. You are no longer beneath, but you are above. You're the head and not the tail. You're above and not beneath. You lend to the nations. You won't have to borrow. There's a reign of grace that you get to release the kingdom of God and the glory of God. That, Like Joshua, wherever you set the soles of your feet, he begins to give you territory. And it might be slow, You build rapport. You're not a, like I say sometimes, and I've heard others say, you're not breakfast cereal Christians, meaning nuts, oats, and flakes. Okay? We really walk in a place that we represent Christ well. But you really do release the kingdom. And I believe that as there's a mobilization of the church of Jesus in the city Catch the Fire Winnipeg being a part of that, that really there is going to be a release of the reign of grace and there's going to be a calling forth that the wedding feast will be full and that there will be people from Winnipeg that will come forth. And you get to be those that help bring them in. I, I want to bless evangelism upon you today. You know, the heart of evangelism, the heart that begins to break for the souls of men and women that don't yet know and have not yet encountered the love of the Father, have not yet encountered the fellowship of the Holy Spirit, or just this dynamic reality that we have an older brother, his name is Jesus. He paid a price so that we could belong, that we could fit, that we were called. We were called, we are called, we will be called. And it's a beautiful reality. And so I I just so want to bless you. I, want to, I felt, too, in preparation that the Lord wanted me to release a blessing similar to the one that the Apostle Paul released to the church of Corinth. And so I'm going to read this to you, and I'm going to you know, revise it a little bit to say the church of Winnipeg. But to the church of God which is at Winnipeg, to those that have been sanctified in Christ Jesus, saints by calling with all who in every place call on the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, their Lord and ours and yours, grace to you, peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. He goes on, I thank my God concerning you for the grace of God which is being given to you, this reign of grace, it's a grace being given to you in Christ Jesus, that in everything, in everything, you were enriched in him, in all speech, And in all knowledge, I believe that even is part of that evangelistic calling. I think some of you have been in a place where you've just been silenced. You felt like you don't have much to give. I believe there's a, you know, there's been a a tactic or an assignment of the enemy to keep you quiet. And and I want to pray over you and release over you that you're going to start to speak. You're going to start to declare. You give an account of the hope that is within you. Be ready in season and out of season. Right, Because I I really sincerely believe, and it's not just a thing of faith, it's just I see it with my natural eyes, the darkness is getting grosser. But hallelujah, light always puts out darkness, and the glory of the Lord will rise upon you. And I bless a place of boldness for you to release that place of speech that in everything you are enriched in him, in all speech and in all knowledge, even as the testimony concerning Christ was confirmed in you, so that you are not lacking in any gift. Awaiting eagerly the revelation of our Lord Jesus Christ, who will also confirm you to the end, blameless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. You know, I, I I actually enjoy. And Chris and I had a bit of a chat. You know, I enjoy the subject of eschatology. I don't believe in being arrogant or dogmatic about it because I think we don't have all the pieces of the puzzle yet. But I do see some things, and I just feel like, Lord, my heart's desire is is that when you return, you're going to come and look at me and look at your church and see there's a place of blamelessness. You know, I I really don't believe that we have a license to sin. I, I, I believe grace doesn't mean you have a license to sin. I believe grace means that you get to walk like Jesus doing the things that Jesus did, but greater things than you'll do because of the power of the Holy Spirit that not only resides in you, but is upon you. It's like Bill Johnson says, he's in you for you, but he's on you for others. And so whatever giftings, whatever anointings and callings that you have, I want to I um, validify, I want to call them valid. I want to, you know, validate, thank you, the word is validate them. I want to validate them. Because you are anointed. You carry the place of the presence. And as you go out into the world, you are the light that shines in the dark place. And so I'm saying, Lord, and, and uh, Ephesians 3 speaks to that. And there's this one verse that came to me in the middle of the night, but I feel like it is fitting for where we are now that um, Paul was stating that he has this grace to preach to the Gentiles. And so I also want to bless you as the church in Winnipeg. To bring to light the manifold wisdom of God. You know, that word manifold is only mentioned once, uh, or maybe twice in the New Testament. And it's the same, it's like multifaceted. It's like a diamond. And so, if we think that the only way that the gospel, the best news the world has ever known is going to come to the people of the city of Winnipeg as an example is going to be through the church or the sorry the city having to come into the church walls i think we got another thing coming It's the manifold wisdom of God that will be made known through the Church of Winnipeg to the rulers and the authorities in the heavenly places. That means when you and I begin to come into agreement with what the blood of Jesus declares you are, you're going to be able to shine like a diamond this glorious light of Jesus into the dark places and into the hidden places. And I believe the fish are going to start jumping into the boat. They really are. I really believe that you are in your workplace and in your, you know, whatever you do between Sunday meetings or between home groups that I know you're going to start, you don't have fully set up yet. But I believe it's between the meetings that you are a minister of the gospel of Jesus Christ, just as valid as any minister that might work within the context of the local church, such as Chris and Katrina and others that are here. You know, the word ecclesia is really the word that was first mentioned by Jesus. He didn't teach much on the ecclesia, it's the word that's translated church throughout. But Jesus introduced the concept of the ecclesia in the darkest place of Israel. He went to the place called Caesarea Philippi, which was a demonic headquarters where there was one of the places was the God uh, it was a temple for the God Caesar for Caesar you know really commemorating Rome and that place It was the God Pan but there also was a place it was the headquarters for the gates of hell. And so Jesus is there at Caesarea Philippi. he's pointing to this huge hole in the wall in the cliff at the base of Mount Hermon where the waters come down, flow into the Galilee and then ultimately flow into the Dead Sea and he's saying in this place, you know, I will build my ecclesia, I will build my church, these gates of hell will not prevail against it. He chose the darkest place in the whole nation of Israel to release his strategy for how the world was going to be saved. And he says it's the ecclesia. Everybody knew at that season what an ecclesia was. Because the ecclesia was a common term. It was the term used by the government of Rome and the government of Greece prior to that. It was a a governmental system or structure to expand the government of Rome into new territory. And if two or three were gathered together, it was called the Conventus, they had the authority of Rome to be able to release Roman government in those places. And so they were authorized. It's like when they did business at the gates of the city, they were authorized to do business. It was like the elders that were in the land. Well, Jesus essentially co-opted a secular system and a structure. He impregnated it with kingdom DNA. And he said, I'm going to build my format of an ecclesia. It's not going to be like Rome because mind is spiritual. And so he taught about the kingdom of God throughout Scripture. He said, It's like taking an old car... You know, our car that's been around for a while. Maybe the body's kept in good shape, but the motor's dead. He says, I'm going to take out the motor. We're going to put in a new motor. It's called the kingdom of God. And I'm going to send that out into the distant reaches of the nation of Israel and beyond. And he said, I'm going to release my kingdom. The ecclesia, those that are called out, sent out, they're going to start to release the gospel of the kingdom wherever they go. And the anointing of the Holy Spirit was going to be upon you, those that went. And Paul the apostle actually did it. Because Paul actually planted these churches, he planted these ecclesias, he conducted business on behalf of the kingdom of God, and scripture in Acts 19 says that he went into the entire region, that the entire region heard about the gospel of Jesus, and that they were setting their eyes on Spain beyond, you know, into into the nation of Spain by that time. I want to say to you that you're more powerful than you think. You really are. I believe the greatest tactic of the enemy that he has on your life right now is is that he's keeping you in the dark about your true identity. If you really understood who you are and who you carry, you are actually the most powerful person on the scene. Wherever you go, into a workplace, into the government offices, into the factories, into your home and family, or into you know, into education, into medicine, into different sphere. Because the Holy Spirit dwells within you, you are the most powerful person there. Because nobody else has the Spirit of God on them, except the believers in Jesus. And we're here to celebrate His kingdom, not ours. And so we're stewards of this kingdom. And so it's a glorious, it is a glorious reality of what we walk in. I believe it's just a matter of time where, You know, the the realm of darkness is losing its grip because has anybody ever been in a super dark room? You know, like at night or, you know, and and then you flip the light switch? The darkness doesn't win. The light wins. Light always puts out darkness. And so it's so crucial and so necessary for you to, you know, to realize it's Christ in you that is the hope of glory. Glory. And what what is the solution? I don't don't know. I've not really studied Winnipeg, but I'd assume that Winnipeg is like a lot of cities, you know, on the planet and in Canada. It probably is quite depraved in its areas, quite deprived. I would expect Winnipeg has a lot of need. I I expect that, like other places, the greatest uh, need in Winnipeg at the core root, the core issue, is probably a place of fatherlessness, Because I look at any societal woe, and I feel if you can trace the societal woe, if you can trace the poverty, if you can trace the addictions, the drug problems, the racial issues that are there, if you can trace them all the way down to the lowest common denominator, it's gonna probably find its place in fatherlessness. And so God loves family. He absolutely loves family. He loves the biological family. He declared in the beginning that he, you know, he's a man and a woman together. But he also loves the family of God. We're brothers and sisters. We have one Father. It's God the Father in heavenly places. And he's already foreordained that the church in Winnipeg is to be victorious. He's, he's done it. Like, I hope we believe it. We, he finishes things before he starts them. <laughs> Do we know that? He finishes it before he starts it. And he doesn't judge you by your past. He he actually measures you by your future. And so the, the future that he's prepared for you, you have to step into it. And it's called you come into agreement with what God says about you, not what your past says about you. Humility is actually agreeing with God about who you are. And so if God says that you are royalty that you're the head and not the tail above and above. Some might say you're being arrogant, but God would say, no, you're being humble because that's who I say you are. And it's, and it's, you know, it's what you carry. It's who you are and what you carry as you release the glorious light of the gospel of Jesus into the dark places. That's why I believe that Matthew 22, it's like go into the highways and the byways, that, that my son's wedding feast, it must be full. My house must be full. And so, I want to share briefly from a passage in 1 Corinthians 3, which I believe is a passage that is both individual, but it is also collective. It is a a passage that I believe is corporate. It it can represent what, what takes place for the church in Winnipeg, in this case, where, you know, the Apostle Paul is talking about some of the factions that were in the Corinthian church. You know, and some say, I'm a Paul, I'm of Apollos. But then he says, really, you can't lay a foundation other than the foundation which has already been laid, which is Jesus Christ. And he says, what are you going to build on it? Be careful how you build. Because he goes on, that day will be, you know, will make known how you built. And so, starting at verse 10 of 1 Corinthians 3, if you've got a Bible or a cell phone or whatever, you can feel free to join me or you can just listen. But he's saying, according to the grace of God which has been given to me. Even there again, grace. It's according to the divine enablement that Paul walked in. Does Paul did Paul have any more grace than you have? Did he? No. You and I have the same grace. We have the same access to the Father. And so, just you know, just saying. <laughs> According to the grace of God which was given me, like a wise master builder, I laid a foundation, another is building on it, but each man must be careful how he builds. The Lord is really raising up an apostolic ministry. I was saying to Chris yesterday, you know, whatever your gifts are, I think we've got to think apostolically. To be apostolic means we got to be builders. I so loved being with Brent and Wendy in the Dominican just a few weeks ago, and met them there, and I saw the work they're doing. They're building houses. They are building something for the sake of the poor, as they're ministering. I'm like, guys, I, I believe that the Lord is raising up an apostolic people. You can be as pastoral or a teacher to the core, but I just think it's important to think apostolically because we're thinking according to the way of heaven, and say, Lord, what do you want to build? We're called to build. And he says, no man can lay a foundation other than the one which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Now, if any man builds on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, and straw, each man's work will become evident for the day, meaning the end day, will show it because it is to be revealed with fire, and the fire itself will test or try or prove the quality or the manner of each man's work. Now, have you ever thought about that? You know, I want to ask you, what are you building and what are your building materials? Because they're giving six building materials right here. You know, they're saying gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, and straw. And then he talks about there's going to come a fire that's going to burn. And it's like if those building materials are burned up, you know, if any man's work which he has built on it remains, he'll receive a reward. But... You know, you're still going to be saved if what you build burns up. But they mentioned six building materials. Gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, and straw. How many of them would remain through the fires? Three. How many will get burned up? Three. The wood, hay, and straw will get burned up. Not too hard. But what differentiates? I think the reality is is that the gold... Silver and precious metals are deep in the ground. You got to dig for them. I believe that the Holy Spirit is calling you and I to dig. You know, there, there's a reality that we've got to. You know, wood, wood, hay, and straw. It's above ground. You just go get it. You have to cut the tree down, but you know the straw, the hay. You know, I mean, it's easy. But gold, silver, precious metals, I. I really feel like it's that call of intimacy. It's like what we experienced in worship today. There's this place of you go deep as you as you gaze upon the one who is beautiful. It's the beholding, becoming principle. You become like him, but there's a reality of digging deep, stripping away anything and everything that hinders the love of God from being manifested in your life and mind and in ours collectively that keeps us from being able to build with gold, silver, precious stones. You know, I encourage you to... Get to this place with God and start to dig deep and find out what's in you. What has the Holy Spirit placed in you that it's important to dig deep for? Because it's worth it. Because there's a day coming where the fires will burn. And there's a day coming where the Lord's going to hand out rewards. It's not the same as your salvation. Don't mistake what I'm saying. The only way you and I can be saved is not through our own works. It's through the precious blood of Jesus that was shed. But there's some works, Ephesians 2.10, for he has foreordained good works for you to walk in. He's prepared from the foundation of the world. We as the church, we're not the harvest, guys, but we're the workers in the harvest field. God has prepared work for us to do. He's called us to build. He's called us to prepare the way of the Lord. The first time Jesus came, there was a John the Baptist who declared and prepared the way of the Lord. I believe the next time that he comes back, there's a John the Baptist company. There's a people, a group of people that are preparing the way of the Lord. We're digging deep. We're building something, Lord willing, out of gold, silver, and precious metals. I'm going to flip over for a second to Matthew chapter 11. And John, sorry, Jesus was just speaking about John the Baptist and, you know, declaring how he was the greatest that was ever born of a woman and, And just speaking in regard to some of his ministry. But then Jesus asks a really good question. He said, to what shall I compare this generation? You know, can I say that I think this generation that's alive today is the most unique generation that uh, I think I can imagine? I mean, technology has completely transformed who we are. You look at, you know, I, I mean, there's so much that's available. But I look at even the millennials. I mean, I hate to admit it, but I blink. Yesterday, I was a millennial, and today, I'm almost an old guy, you know. <laughs> I know there's people in their 60s and beyond. But, but, you know, the way the millennials think is just so different. It's so unique. But God, in his foreknowledge, I believe, has set this generation apart to, to launch out. This generation wants something real. They're not willing to give themselves to something that you know, is fake or minimal reward. It's like they want something. They want all or nothing is what I've observed. It's like we're either all in or we're all out. And it's like, give give me something to live for. Give me something to die for. And so Jesus made the declaration. What am I going to compare this generation to, meaning the generation that he was alive in? And he says, it's like children sitting in the marketplace who call out to the other children and they say, we played the flute for you and you didn't dance. We sang a dirge for you, or a lament, and you did not mourn. And then Jesus said, for John, meaning John the Baptist, he came neither eating or drinking, and, and they accuse John. They say, he's got a demon. And then the Son of Man, though, he came eating and drinking, and they say, behold, he's a gluttonous man, and he's a drunkard. He's a friend of tax collectors and sinners. And then Jesus says, but wisdom is vindicated by her deeds. Well, what's he saying? What I'm seeing in that passage is, is the heart of the father is such that he so longs for his children to be called back to himself. I believe the whole gospel is a gospel story about a father that lost his kids and the extent to which he'll go to get them back again. And so God is saying, what will it take to win my kids? So he sends a guy like John the Baptist, a crazy man, eats locusts and honey and he's fasting and he's He's, he's restricting himself. He has this fasted lifestyle. No drinking wine. He, he fasts all the time. He's certainly not a glutton. He's a crazy dude. Goes out into the wilderness. People are getting baptized for him. Because it's like John the Baptist and his specific type of personality is the kind of guy that a certain niche of people are going to go for. They want to begin to follow him because he's just right out of the box. And then six months or however many months you know, later after his ministry was fully in swing, probably more than that, Jesus comes on the scene. And while John the Baptist neither ate nor drank, you know, fasted lifestyle, Jesus comes, and he's got a feasting lifestyle. You know, it's like, do, do, my, do the people fast when the bridegroom's with them? So he's feasting, and they're accusing him of being a glutton and a drunkard, a winebibber. You know, he came eating and drinking. So here you've got a guy that's way out on this extreme, and on this side you've got a guy that's way out on that extreme. So I think in the strategy of the father I'm sending two different people to declare the same message and they're so completely opposite that it's like it's like a net let's just bring as many people into the kingdom as we possibly can. And so what he's saying is you know how do I compare this generation it's like kids that you know on one hand they're 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 playing the pipe or singing a dirge a funeral song you know to try to win people in and on this side you know they're 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 playing a flute, but he's saying, you didn't dance and you didn't lament. I'm sending the call out. Are you going to come in? Are you going to respond to a guy like John? Or are you going to respond to a guy like Jesus? But the father wants his kids back. And then he goes from that place. And, and it's like he shifts. But I don't think he's really shifting. But because his heart is so for people, and, I, and I'm realizing now that the message, I, I believe the heart of the father is starting to shift. And God's starting to look not just at individuals. I believe he's looking at cities, and I believe he's looking at nations. I, I, I believe we're going to see cities bend their knee voluntarily to the name of Jesus. When the first one happens, there's going to be others that follow. It's like, it's like when Bannister ran the four-minute mile. You guys remember that? It was like nobody could run a four-minute mile. And all of a sudden, I think it was Roger Bannister ran it. And then within a year, it's like there's eight or ten people that ran a four-minute mile. And now that's the standard by which, hey, if you can run a four-minute mile, you're doing pretty good. Well, it's the same concept. I believe cities are going to start to fall. I believe there's places where a city is going to come and bend their knee to Jesus voluntarily because it's like for whatever reason, the heavens are weak or the membrane is really thick between that realm of glory and this place in which we live. And I'm saying to you, why not Winnipeg? Because the people that are going to see and that will be instrumental in the the plight or the end-time destiny of this city of Winnipeg is the church of Winnipeg right now. You guys, you're the workers in the harvest. You're not the harvest. You probably all heard, maybe, maybe not, but there's a prophesied one billion soul harvest. I personally don't think it's enough because it's like, let's say hypothetically that there's a billion souls on the earth right now, so a billion Christians on the earth, seven to eight billion total, you know, we got maybe one-seventh, one-fifth right now, another billion maybe will give us anywhere from a quarter to a third. I'm like, geez, I, I, don't, I don't see that as victory. I think we need to see, you know, g- give us at least 90%, you know. But let's just for minimal purposes say a billion. That's about a seventh of the planet. What's the population of Winnipeg? 800,000? So let's say a seventh. You should see at least one hundred to 150,000 people in Winnipeg come into the kingdom. Minimum, on average. And so what place of preparation do we have in our hearts as we're, as we're moving in that direction? And how is Winnipeg, is Winnipeg ready for a move of the Spirit? Because I, as I see it, as I prayed into it, I believe that right now one of the key roles of the ecclesia of the church, because this is just where the church gathers, by the way, It's just where we gather. You are the church. This isn't the church. This is just the bricks and mortar. You guys are the church. You're the ecclesia. You're the ones assigned by the Spirit of God to release the kingdom of God wherever you go. To bring the light of the the glory of the gospel of Jesus Christ. To shine his light, righteousness, peace, and joy. Okay? And you're not going to be able to do that if you don't come into agreement with who you are. So it's identity and destiny that comes forth from that place. So then Jesus comes, and it's like he shifts, but he doesn't, because he's talking, I believe, about the psyche of a city. He's talking about the spiritual climate over the cities. It says he began to denounce the cities in which most of his miracles were done. Because if, if Galilee, if Israel or the Sea of Galilee is shaped like a hand, most of Jesus' ministry happened between, We get that right, 9 o'clock and 12 o'clock. Okay, down here is Tiberias, up here is Capernaum. It's like between 9 and 12. So if that's the Sea of Galilee, that's where Jesus did his ministry, his headquarters was Capernaum. And so he starts and he's saying, woe. And woe, by the way, is an announcement of impending destruction. You don't ever want to hear Jesus speak woe over you or woe over your city. And he says, woe to you, Chorazin, which is a city in the area or a town. And then he says, woe to you, Bethsaida, for if the miracles had occurred in Tyre and Sidon, which had occurred in you, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. So that tells me that you can have two completely different cities and you can have the exact same miracles and the exact same move of God and one city will reject it and one city will accept it. And so I believe that the role of you as the ecclesia in Winnipeg is to begin to release a culture and a climate, release the climate of the Spirit of God, shift the spiritual climate so that Winnipeg, when the move of the Spirit hits, Winnipeg will be a city that will actually bend the knee to the name of Jesus. I believe that's part of the strategy that the Lord has has called you to release, that you are carriers of His presence. And, I, and, and it's like, why is it? You know, why is it that Israel, and I could get in, I think I know some of the theological reasons, but that's another thing. You know, Tyre and Sidon is modern-day Lebanon. They would have repented. Chorazin and Bethsaida and Israel didn't if it had been the same miracles. He goes on. He says, nevertheless, I say to you, it will be more tolerable for Tyre and Sidon in the day of judgment, and that's the Greek word crisis, by the way, spelled with a K, in the day of judgment than for you. What does that tell us? That tells me that cities, and I believe cities in certain generations, are going to actually face the king of glory, and God's going to give them report card day. Does it put a little bit of the fear of God in you? you know, I, I, I'm, I don't mind the fear of God. As long as i got lots of the love of God, the fear of God keeps us from sin. I'm like, God, I'll take the fear of God in my heart. If I ever get tempted by sin, man, give me the fear of God to just keep me in the straight and narrow but I don't want fear and not have love. So he's saying, guys, there's a, there's a day of judgment for you cities, you know, for you, Chorazin, Bethsaida. There's a day coming. And then Jesus says, and you, Capernaum.' Now, the word Capernaum is actually, in, in Hebrew, is Kephar-Nayum. And you say, well, big deal, it's kephar Naum. But that actually means the village of the comforter. kephar Naum, Nahum is one of the prophets. In the Old Testament, it's the village of the comforter. Jesus makes his headquarters for his whole ministry in the New Testament in the village of the comforter, and he actually fulfills the prophetic word from Isaiah 40, which says, comfort ye, comfort ye, my people. He was a comforter. The religious leaders of that day had the mentality that if you were poor, if you were lame, if you were crippled, if you were blind, it's because you deserved it. It's because of sin in your life or your family's life, and the religious leaders of that day would push you down. Because you must have sin, and therefore you deserve it. Jesus came to comfort them. He came to heal them. He came to approve of them. He came to declare you belong. And so he came as the comforter. And so he's saying, you, Capernaum, will not be exalted to heaven, will you? You will descend to Hades. For if the miracles had occurred in Sodom, which had occurred in you, it would have remained until this day. It's like, guys, remember Sodom and Gomorrah? You know, the cities that Abraham pleaded for, it's like, God, if, you know, if there's, what would they end with? Five or ten? Ten righteous. If there's ten righteous, will you spare it? And then he stopped. The Lord says, no, if there's ten, I'm going to spare the city. Right? Why did God destroy it? I mean, I think the accuser undoubtedly was there, declaring God is a God of justice. He's also a God of righteousness. But Sodom was destroyed. But he's saying, Capernaum... Sodom would have repented. If this move of the Spirit that happened in Capernaum, if it had happened in Sodom, they would have absolutely repented. Guys, if there is a move of the Spirit like unto the move that Jesus walked in, how is Winnipeg going to respond? What do you think? She's going to be saved. How many agree? Will Winnipeg (laughs) bow the knee, bend the knee? I, I believe that that is the role of the church right now. Prepare the way. By the way, does anybody know what the guilt of Sodom was? It's actually in the Bible. It's a Bible test for you. It's in the book of Ezekiel, chapter 16, verse 49. Ezekiel's declaring, Behold, this was the guilt of your sister Sodom. She and her daughters had four things. Number one, arrogance. Number two, abundant food. So lived in abundance, deep, incredible prosperity. Number three, careless ease. It's like, you know, okay, sarah, sarah, whatever will be, will be. Life is good. Life's easy. Let's just have fun. Eat, drink, be merry. Number four, they did not help the poor and the needy. And that, those four things led them to a place where they did not need God in their own minds. And they've got to a place of incredible sexual immorality to the point that even righteous Lot groaned in his spirit. He was tormented, Jude says, day by day because of the sin of that city. And by the way, Lot never should have been in that city because when Abraham was there in the Judean hills, they were facing east because that's what it means to be oriented biblically. You faced east. Here we orient to the north there in Israel you face to the east Abraham said lot if you choose right I'll choose left if you choose left I'll choose right lot looked straight ahead and down said so it's lush down there and he goes to the deepest places of the earth Sodom it's actually a place where you know it was deeply demonic headquarters down there and so he could have stayed in the hills God people stay in the hills in those days and so I'm saying you know what's it going to take to bend the knee You know, what's it going to take for Winnipeg to bend the knee to the name of Jesus? I I believe one of the greatest tragedies we can ever see is for a move of God to come to our city and our city to reject it. And so I'm going to end right there, but I think we need to pray for Winnipeg. Why don't we stand?